Hey, thanks for tuning in to Redeeming Grace Bible Church. Here at Redeeming Grace, it is our full conviction that as Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching and for correction and for reproof and for training in righteousness. We are committed to teaching the whole counsel of God that the people of God might be built up and that lost sinners might come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. John chapter 6, starting at verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, And they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also, which I will give for the life of the world, is my flesh. Thank you, Luke. Um, let us, uh, before we begin, just start with a word of prayer, uh, illumination that God would open our understanding and guide us by his spirit to look at his word. Bow with me, please. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have preserved it through centuries, Lord, through famines and wars and floods and um, all kinds of natural disasters. Lord, we hold in our hands a copy of your inspired and fallible word, and we are grateful for that this morning. We pray that your spirit would guide us into understand, Lord, the meaning of the words of Christ, and Lord, that we would truly be among those who look upon Christ with eyes to see, with ears to hear, who believe upon Christ uh, for salvation. And Lord, we ask that you would, uh, by your spirit, uh, guide us into all truth. And we pray this uh, for your glory's sake, Lord, in the name of Christ. Amen. 
So as we continue this study, uh, looking at what is sometimes called the doctrines of grace, um, these doctrines that historically have been the source of much controversy, but I would say at the same time the source of much uh, joy and much comfort and much kingdom work um, in the lives of God's people. And I've been continually reminded that if we seek to know God and to understand his word, we are going to encounter conflict, we're going to encounter struggle and disagreement, and yet it's as we persevere and press through that, that we come to know God more fully. And so we have uh, worked through, um, I guess, the first three of the five doctrines, not exhaustively, of course, but uh, kind of looking at them, the lost condition of man, total depravity. We've looked at God's electing grace, the unconditional election. Last week we finished up uh, kind of two-part sermon on the atonement of Christ, I'm trying to understand what Christ accomplished in the cross. And how does that um, come to us as the bride of Christ? And what effect does that have upon the world? And um, as you recall, um, very importantly that, that the gospel the saving work of Christ was going to extend beyond the Jews it was not only going to be a, a Jewish reality to be part of God's covenant people but it was going to be for the Gentiles as well and so we come then to the I in our TULIP acronym which are just uh, letters that are used to help remember these five doctrines and it creates the word tulip. Now, the I, traditionally, has stood for irresistible grace. And um, oftentimes, uh, with, you know, when we try to use a, a quick summary phrase or word like irresistible grace, there can be misunderstandings, misconceptions as to what it means. Um, you know, someone in response to such a, a phrase as irresistible grace might get some kind of image of a sinner being dragged to Christ while they're kicking and screaming and, and saying that they don't want to go and, and, and that this is somehow what the doctrine of irresistible grace teaches. <clears throat> or they might think that somehow God would prohibit those who would like to come, um, but that he somehow does not allow them unless he, um, by this irresistible grace, is going to bring them in. And those are misunderstandings of what this doctrine means. Um, in fact, R.C. Sproul said that he would prefer the title effectual grace as, to, as opposed to irresistible grace. Effectual grace uh, probably more clearly communicates what this doctrine is, what it means. And, um, and as with some of the other ones as well, there are probably better ways to describe uh, what the doctrine is. Total depravity maybe. um um, complete inability, and so I think effectual grace would probably be the clearest um, way to understand what this doctrine is communicating. So, irresistible grace, effectual grace, what is it? Where does it come from in the scriptures? Someone might protest and say, well, that, that would imply God's grace can't be resisted. We see God's grace resisted all the time in the scripture, so obviously this doctrine must be false. Um, in fact, I came across a verse this week 
in Zechariah 7, verse 9, that is a perfect example of people resisting God. Um, it reads in Zechariah 7, starting at verse 9, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But verse 11 says, But they refused to pay attention, and turned a stubborn shoulder, and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his Spirit through the former prophets. And so God's people from the Old Testament, even into the New, hardened themselves um, uh, against the word of God. And, and as God's people, I'm talking about the, the visible uh, body uh, of Christ. Of course, we know the true people of God uh, hear the word and submit to it. But those who profess to be the people of God, we see in scriptures at times, harden themselves. And so you might say, well, obviously this grace can be resisted. So what is this doctrine? I think um, my best attempt to summarize this doctrine of effectual grace is that the grace of God purchased by the Lord Jesus Christ and administered by the Spirit through the Word of God is always and completely effective for all of God's elect. And I'll I'll say that again. This doctrine is teaching that God's grace that it was purchased by the Lord Jesus Christ, and that it is ministered to us by the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, that grace is always and completely effective for all of God's elect. And this is kind of a a summary of what this doctrine is about. And you can start to see why these doctrines are referred to as the doctrines of grace. They, they help us to understand God's work in salvation. What is actually happening as someone turns from darkness to light? Not only on the exterior, which we often see. We see someone living in sin and, 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 and indulging in a, a godless lifestyle. And upon hearing the gospel, they make a profession of faith. They are baptized in water and Um, their life begins to change. There is this transformation, and we see the external effects of salvation, and I think that even those who may disagree on some of these doctrines would agree on the external effects of salvation. But what these are helping us to understand is what is going on internally, spiritually, what is happening, what is causing that change, what is causing that turn from darkness to light. And we find in the scriptures that the great cause is the effectual grace of God. This, what is sometimes called irresistible grace, is the great cause of our salvation. And um, that's why I prefer to refer to these specific doctrines as the doctrines of grace. Some might uh, use a title like Calvinism. um, But, you know, Calvin, like millions of others, taught these doctrines um, you know, in more, uh, I guess, Baptistic circles, we have Charles Spurgeon, um, we have John Bunyan, historically. Um, today, you know, we have well-known preachers and speakers who are, are saying the same thing. So it's not like Calvin um, invented these doctrines or that they originated with him. Rather, he, with some of the other Protestant reformers, rediscovered them after a long time of them being neglected. And, and that's key, and so I always prefer 
the, uh, the doctrines of grace, although I usually know what someone means if they want to bring up Calvin's name in the discussion. So the doctrines of grace, how is God's grace at work in us? How does it come to us? How does it manifest within our hearts and souls? And today we see, um, as, as we progress from our depravity, from our deadness and sin, we see God's purpose and election, that he's purposed to redeem a remnant out of mankind, that he has chose before the foundations of the world, that Jesus Christ the Son comes um, in, in flesh, becoming a man, God and man coming together in the person of Christ, and he, fulfilling all righteousness, offers his life as an atonement, as a payment, um, for those whom the Father has given specifically. And while the cross is sufficient for all, all can see the cross uh, in the sense that Christ and I will be lifted up before all men, but it is effective, it is, it is working, it is um, applied specifically to those whom the Father has given. And that manifests itself in repentance, in faith, in a life of transformation by the Spirit. So, as we look at this passage in John 6, I think this is one of the clearest places where we see Christ teaching this aspect of God's grace, the effectual working calling of God, uh, calling sinners from darkness into light, the effectiveness, the irresistibleness, if you will, of that call. Just as with orphans, um, if you want to adopt an orphan, there are the legal ramifications that you must go through. You must get paperwork in order and sign papers and, and, and verify that, that you're a credible um, um, you know, person to adopt. And then you must make payment for the fees to, to get the adoption process to go through. And you have this entire aspect of legal um, dimensions to adopting. And, and so in the same with salvation, we might think of the work of Christ, his payment upon the cross, where we are actually justified, where Christ said it is finished, the payment is complete, it is there that we are legally declared righteous, that this legal part of our salvation is finished, and that we have actually no part of that at all. It is completely of Christ. And so... That is like the, the, the paperwork of the orphan. But then there comes a time when the mom and the dad uh, go to the orphanage and they, they get to see the child face to face and, and, and the joy of the child. And I'm going to have a home. I'm going to have a mom and dad. I'm going I'm to walk out of here. I'm going to have my own bed to sleep in tonight. And when that actually becomes a reality. And that is really what this doctrine is looking at in the Christian's life. When that work of Christ, that justifying, atoning work of Christ, becomes a reality in our life and is manifest in repentance and faith, in a coming to Christ, a beholding of Christ, um, as a result of what God has done. So a lot of times... Um, Theologians or teachers will make a distinction between what is called a general call of God and the effectual call of God. Um, this is very much at the heart of what this uh, doctrine is about. And, and you might compare it to giving something away. Like say you had a whole uh, van load of guitars that you, you somehow inherited or something. And you don't want to do with them. So you go out to the Walmart parking lot and you park in the parking lot and you just start calling out. 
free guitar, free guitar, anybody want a free guitar? And you have this general call going out to anyone who can hear you, inviting them to come and get a free guitar. Now, some people will look at you like you're a criminal and probably walk by faster. Others might uh, just ignore you because they don't play a guitar and they don't really care to have one. Um, others might tell you to get out of their parking spot and, and to go away, that you're being annoying. But there'll be a few who will run up with excitement and then, and, and like, really, a free guitar? I love guitars. I can really have one and they'll be so grateful and thankful. And that is, the, that is this distinction of the general call that goes out and the effectual call of those who actually receive, who actually come and receive the gift. Now, for much of, I think, Christians today, that is basically as far as our understanding of salvation goes. We know that people are invited to receive the gift of salvation through Christ, and that if they will repent and believe, they will be saved, and we see some choosing to repent and believe, and we see others not. And that's often as far as we go um, in our understanding of God's work of salvation. But what this doctrine helps us to understand is why some come and some don't. Why did I come? Why is there faith residing in me by the power of the Spirit and not some of my friends who I, who I graduated with who, who to this day remain hardened to the gospel? Why is that? Well, the only answer that the scriptures really give us is God's effectual call, the drawing of the Father. And so we come to our passage here in John 6, and we know that um, in John 6, up to this point, Jesus has been growing in popularity. He has performed some amazing miracles. Just previously in, in the gospel, John records the, the feeding of the 5,000, um, where Jesus, with a few loaves and fish, feeds 5,000, probably more like 15,000, because that number would have been the men present, and so you have the women and the children, and, and amazing miracle. And then as the disciples are going across the sea later that evening, Jesus walks out on the water to meet them. And, and Jesus' popularity has, has reached uh, a climax, in a sense, so much so that in, in chapter 6, of and uh, verse uh, 14 it is, I believe, uh, 15, actually, we find the people were going to come to Christ, take him by force, and make him king. And so this is how much they liked Jesus. He, they were ready to put a crown on his head to serve him as loyal subjects, because this obviously is the man they have been looking for. But as the, as the evening goes by and they wake up and Jesus has gone to the other side of the lake, this crowd of people follow Christ and what we find is that uh, in verse 26, Jesus says to them, as they can see this great mob of people coming to Christ, and, and you know, if, if this was a modern-day preacher or evangelist, they would think, man, this is my time to write my book. I've got to launch my webpage. I've got to get my blog going. I could probably get a New York bestseller, because look at all of these people following. From any worldly perspective, this would be Jesus' most successful moment in his ministry, and yet Jesus says to them, you're not seeking me. Uh, he says, you are seeking me not because you, because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. 
And Jesus rebukes them and says, you're here not because you actually desire me, not because you actually have faith, but because your, 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 your supper has now digested and you're hungry again and you think that I'm going to give you another free meal. And Jesus begins then the one of the most offensive sermons that he preaches, so offensive that by the end of the chapter, there are 11 true believers left, one traitor, and all the rest have left because Christ has offended them so deeply. And right in the midst of this, as Jesus is, is corresponding with them, um, we have this proclamation of, first of all, in verse 35, really a, a proclamation of the gospel. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is the gospel message. Come to Christ, and you will be satisfied. Come, eat of Christ, partake of Christ, and you will never hunger and thirst again. And of course, he is talking spiritually while they are thinking physically. But we see the unbelief of the people. Jesus says in verse 36, I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. And so they, they, there's this general call in a sense. There is Christ, the creator of all things, now in flesh, standing before them. The one who spoke all things into existence is literally standing in front of them. They are looking at him. They're talking to him. They're, they're hearing his voice. And yet... They are unbelievers. It has done them no good. They remain unchanged, unmoved. They remain faithless, despite the fact that they are standing in the presence of Christ. It is shocking that this can even happen. And we might ask, well, if this is the case, if Jesus is saying to them, you, you may see me, but you don't believe in me. Then we would ask, well then, how can man believe? I mean, you can't get a more special, clear revelation than the person of Jesus Christ standing before you, and yet they remain unchanged. How is it that man can believe? How is it that man can be saved? How is it that we come to Christ by faith? Well, Jesus gives us the answer, and it's not the answer we would expect. Even today I hear people say that, well, if we just had more miracles, more, more signs and wonders, then we would see a great turning to God. We would, see, we would see a great return back to Christ. Really? These people just witnessed the feeding of 5,000. They just watched Christ walk out on the water, and yet they stand there unchanged, hardened in their sin. Miracles will save no one. And they have not saved in the past. In verse 37, Jesus drops what I would say is a, a theological bomb on them. And it is shocking and it's offensive. And yet this is what Christ says. All that the Father uh, gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And we must pause for a moment and, and let the reality of what Christ is saying soak in that we really understand what this means. Um, unbelief is not conquered by miracles. It's not 
overcome by per persuasive speech or humor, or it's not overcome by emotional tear-jerking stories, it's not overcome by long drawn-out invitations with moving songs or compelling preachers um, promising people things that they ought not to promise. None of those things can overcome unbelief. There is only one thing, and that is that the Father gives to the Son. Do you see what he says? All that the Father gives me will come to me. So there is this, there's this complete, perfect correlation between the giving of the Father and the coming to Christ. All that the Father gives. So every single person whom the Father has given comes. There are not some who are given and then, well, halfway through they decide, you know what, I don't, I don't really want to follow through with this, I'm going to quit. There's no quitters. There's no dropouts. There's no one that, that starts this race to the sun and then quits halfway through. No, they all come. That call of God, this giving to Christ is effective. It is uh, irresistible in that sense that it happens as the Father has purposed. So we, we don't have to worry that Christ possibly died for nothing or that heaven could have potentially been without the redeemed people from Adam's race, because as the Father in that eternal covenant gives to the Son, so it effectively happens in space and time. Jesus says similar things throughout his ministry in John 8, 47. He's, he's in this debate with the Pharisees, and, and they're saying they're of God, and Jesus saying, no, you're actually of the devil, you're actually of Satan, the father of lies. And Jesus says this in John 8, 47, Whoever is of God hears the words of God. There, there you see, the, 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 the reason that someone hears the words of God, and this is the hearing of, of faith, is that they are of God. And then Jesus says in the negative in verse 47, The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. And you see the connection. To be of God produces hearing. To not be of God, to not be um, this, to be given in the sense that Jesus is saying, is to then not hear the word of God. The connection is completely um, consistent in the giving and in the coming to Christ. Now Jesus speaks of the work of the Father that their Father gives, and then he says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So there is this also, and this is actually the, the P in our TULIP acronym, the, the perseverance of the saints, which we'll look at, Lord willing, next week. There is this keeping, this, this keeping by Christ that all whom the Father gives to him, he keeps them, he will raise them. They are kept by his power, and Christ says, I will lose none of them. And uh, Lord willing, we, like I say, we'll look more at that next week. So, this verse that Jesus speaks, um, and the doctrine that it contains is helpful in understanding how God's grace works in us. And this is why Paul says things like, it's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Or Peter would say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born to a living hope. 
1 Peter 1, 3. This is the, the result of God's work. He is the cause of our birth, rebirth. He's the cause of our faith, of our repentance. The effectual call of God that comes through the gospel message as the Spirit of God works within us. Um, as I have before, I was looking at some of the, uh, the catechism questions that, that are just short questions and then answers um, often used as a way of discipling children, and, and we've tried to use these in our home, and not as consistent always as we should be, but they are so helpful in, in, in helping us to just summarize some of the essential doctrines of the Christian faith. And in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 31 is this, what is effectual calling? This is what we're talking about. The irresistible grace, the effectual work of God. And, and the answer is this. Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, He doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ, freely offered to us in the gospel. And so it is this work of the Spirit, and they give all these verbs, the convincing of our sin. The Spirit must convince us that we are sinners, and the Spirit must enlighten our minds that we can understand the glory of Christ. The Spirit renews our wills. Our will is, is changed from a will after the nature of Adam, now to the nature of Christ in the newness of his spirit, and the spirit persuades us and enables us to embrace Christ freely offered us in the gospel. And they point to some of the verses we're looking at this morning, um, 2 Timothy 1.9, who hath saved us and called us with a holy calling. We find in Pentecost, at Pentecost in Acts 2, Peter preaches and we're told in Acts 2.37 that they were pricked in their hearts. Well, who did that? What happened there? Why, why all of a sudden was there this, this pain in their hearts of their sin? Well, the Spirit of God has been working and he, convic he convicted them of their sin. And they were experiencing this effectual call, this grace of God. A question that uh, is always interesting to ask is, which is first, the new birth or faith? Are we first regenerated by the power of the Spirit, or do we first exercise faith, and then, as a result, are born again? Uh, again, most Christians in North America, and I think, praise be to God, this is changing, but most would answer emphatically that, of course, faith is first exercised, and then we are born of the Spirit. Um, you know, like the old... Uh, crank uh, engines on the tractors where you have to crank the, the front of it to get that thing turning. And then once it's turning, then everything, the, 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 uh, the pressure of the engine and the fuel will start to flow and everything will start to run. And maybe they think of salvation that way, that, that we must kind of crank that wheel. We must kind of get this thing moving. And after we do that, the Spirit of God takes over and uh, finishes that work. But here's the problem. We're dead. We don't have spark plugs. We don't have fuel. We're, we're an old rusty seized up engine on the yard. How can that thing get moving? Well, it must be made new. I'm not a, a much of a mechanic, but I know that if something is seized, you can't just keep cranking over the engine. You have to replace the part. And so it is. How is it that someone dead in sin is able to exercise faith? 
They can't. There must be something that happens to us. There must be life. There must be a change. There must be new parts, if you will, that enables us to begin um, repenting and believing. Maybe another good example is um, electricity. And uh, I think I... I don't think I'll mess this one up, Luke. It's pretty simple. I just got one, one little circuit. <laughs> but electricity is a good example as well. If you have a circuit with a light bulb and a switch and a power source, we know that if the light is to come on, there must be power to it. And, and so if your switch is off, it's ridiculous to think that somehow that light is going to come on by changing the light or, or trying to pep talk the light or, you know, you know uh, trying to, you know, uh, maybe... I don't you can't feed a light bulb, but you know, this is ridiculous, but, but you know, th- there must be power to it, right? And which comes first? Well, if you turn a light switch on, it would seem that it happens almost simultaneously, that as soon as you hit the switch, the light's on. But if you could slow time down, uh, you would see the power come through the switch and work its way up to the light, and once that power is there, the light comes on. Well, this is the same for our salvation, the, the presence of repentance and faith will be very close to that regenerating work of the Spirit, to the new birth that happens by the power of God. But it is the Spirit that must work first. Even though, you know, in time, you might see someone repenting and believing, and, and, and just a split second before the Spirit of God had worked in their heart and brought this newness of life, It it is the Spirit who initiates. It is the Spirit of God, according to the Father's good pleasure, that does this giving to the Son, this drawing to the Son. This is why in in 2 Timothy 2.25, Paul calls repentance a gift from God. Have you ever thought of your repentance that way? That, that we can't even repent properly unless the Spirit of God enables us, instructs us, shows us our sin. It's a gift of God, Paul says. And in Philippians 1.29, Paul would tell us that it is granted to us not only to believe, but to also suffer for the sake of Christ. Our faith, our believing is a gift of God. It is the result of something God has done within us. Or in John 3, 3, Jesus would tell Nicodemus, you can't even see the kingdom of God unless you've been born again. It's not a matter of of entering at this point. It's just a matter of seeing it. You have to be born again. You, You have to be renewed. You have to be regenerated before the kingdom of God is even on your radar. So some might say, well, if that's the case, then then I guess I don't need to share the gospel. It's useless. I don't need to pray. I don't need to do missions. All of that's useless if it's simply God's work that he effectively does in us and that we respond to. And you've probably heard that um, as though that's the great problem that we somehow missed or Paul missed or Jesus missed or the the fathers of the faith have missed. That Oh, I didn't, I didn't think of that. I, I didn't think of the fact that now I can't share the gospel, now I don't care about missions, if I affirm that it must be God's uh, effectual call. But what you miss is the words of Christ. He told his disciples, all authority has been given to me. Now go 
and make disciples. Because this is true, because I have all authority, because I am the author of life, because I am the true bread that has come down from heaven, then go. Because that's true. Go and make disciples with confidence that as you open your mouth and you share the gospel, it's not in vain. There's going to be a harvest. There's going to be a fruitfulness in the proclamation of God's word because it's his work. And that's good news. And it produces evangelism. It produces prayer. It produces a burden for the lost and and a desire to, to honor Christ with all that we have because we know, I can't do this. I can't save my children. But I know a God who can. And so I'm going to pray. And I know the means that God has given to save is the gospel. And so I'm going to proclaim the gospel to my children and to uh, those whom the Lord brings across my path. And we need to pray that we would have boldness to do that. You have uh, missionaries like William Carey, who is called the father of missions, affirmed these doctrines. And he goes to India with the confidence that as I proclaim the gospel, the sovereign God will effectively call unto himself all those whom he has given to the Son. And he goes and he serves and he labors in this place for the sake of the gospel, reaching the lost world with the good news of Christ. And you see the Jews are grumbling about this. And and what's interesting is today we're grumbling more so about the the statement that that, uh, the Father gives to the Son and those come. Um, They were grumbling about, I think, what is is really more... um, the, the greater reality here is the fact that Christ is the bread from heaven. That's, that's the main thrust here, is that Jesus is, is the God-man. That's what they're upset about. He just claimed, he just claimed divinity. Jesus was crucified um, not over maybe these particular doctrines, but primarily as a blasphemer, as one who claimed to be equal with God. And so they're upset about that, that he would make such a statement, that we know this guy. We know his dad, his mom. Uh, he's just an ordinary guy. How can he say such things? And then Jesus again responds to them, Don't grumble. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. And Jesus responds again to this hardness in that he himself is resting in the sovereignty of God and he is not shaken by the hardness of heart and, and, and the refusal to, to submit to him, that it is not shaking Jesus to watch crowds of people turn and walk away because he knows this is the Father's work. And the only way that someone's going to come to me is if the Father draws him to me. And so I don't have to, to lose sleep when people choose not to come. And this is... This is a glorious truth for us who, who share the gospel and, and I've heard people say that they, they feel themselves responsible for someone's lack of repentance and faith and, and that they, they, they feel that they are going to have to somehow answer for that. You don't have to answer for someone's lack of repentance and faith. That is not our work. We are just called to share the message and to trust God to do as it, it pleases Him. And Jesus had full confidence that, that the only way these people are going to actually repent and believe is if my Father draws them to myself. And again, we see this perfect consistency with the drawing of God 
and the keeping of Christ, that all those who, who come to Christ will be raised up. I will raise him up on the last day. Now, uh, some will, will say, well, I think that God draws everybody. And so I agree that no one can come to God, uh, no one can come to Christ unless the Father draws him. But I think that everybody is universally drawn to God, and then we have to choose yes or no. The problem with that is it makes Jesus a liar at this point. Because Jesus said that all those who are given will come, and all those who are drawn by the Father will be raised up with Christ. So either Jesus is lying and and God draws everyone and only some actually repent and believe, or you have to become a universalist and say everyone in the end is saved, everyone in the end is going to heaven. And we know both of those things cannot be true. God forbid that someone would, would call Christ a liar, and the scriptures are clear that not all will be saved, there will be some who go into everlasting torment. And so the only way to understand this is that God draws some and others he leaves in their just condemnation. Um, Spurgeon used an example about this doctrine. He said, Now I have a mass of people here, and if I might use a figure, I should compare you to a great heap of ashes, mingled with which are a few steel filings. So, so this is Spurgeon's picture to help us understand this, this, this doctrine. You have the world as a great pile of ash, which is an appropriate picture when you consider the devastation of sin. But within this pile there are metal filings, and so he says, Now my sermon, if it is attended with divine grace, will be a sort of magnet. It will not attract any of the ashes. They will keep just where they are but it will draw out the steel filings. I have got a Zacchaeus there. There is a Mary up there, a John down there, a Sarah or a William or a Thomas there, God's chosen ones. They are steel filings in the congregation of ashes. And my gospel, the gospel of the blessed God, like a great magnet, drawing them out of the heap. That's the picture. And this is why... Many missionaries that held to these doctrines go into, if you will, ash heaps that have not been gone into with the gospel message because they know in that pile, and, and despite the suffering I'm going to, to, to face, as I proclaim this message, the Father will do His work by His Spirit and draw those steel filings to Christ. And so there's actually a great boldness that comes when a missionary begins to understand the effectiveness of God's call through the gospel. And if you recall um, a few weeks back, you know, because the question comes up, well, what about our, our will? Um, how, how is our will involved in this? If it's God's effectual call that brings about my salvation, does that mean that it's against my will? Am I, am I dragged to Christ where I don't want to be? How does that work? And, and a few weeks back, we used the definition of free will as simply the freedom to act according to our nature. That is what Biblically, uh, free will means it is the freedom to act according to our nature. So we see this physically, as, I, as we've said, very plainly. I am limited by my physical nature. Um, you know, I, um, 
even at work, I, I find this sometimes it's it's kind of embarrassing. I'm I'm a bit of a you know smaller guy, I suppose. Don't have huge biceps, and we were threading some gas lines, some one-inch line, and I you know had my pipe wrench, and I thought it was tight, and everything was good, and then we we turned the gas on and put an air oh we put an air test on it to check and see if it will hold pressure, and there's some leaks, and I'm like oh no my gas line is leaking, and so we have to go inside with a soap bottle and check it, and sure enough a few of my connections weren't tight. I'm I'm, I'm limited by my my physical strength, and so you know you know what you do you get a bigger wrench right some more leverage to get that thing tighter. We're limited by our natures, and so it is spiritually. If you are dead in your trespasses and sins, you are free to, to act according to that nature, but you certainly can't save yourself. The gospel is not good news. You will not come to Christ according to that nature. What must happen is you must receive a new nature. And that is what the rebirth is all about. And so as the gospel message is proclaimed and the Spirit of God works in the hearts of unbelievers, the new birth is, is, is actually a, a creating of a new creature. The old man, Adam, dies. He is crucified with Christ. And the new man comes by the power of the Spirit. And then what do you see? You see a change of behavior, a change of actions, a new want to, if you will, what you once loved. Even as Paul said, what, what I used to love, I now despise. I, I put childish things away from me because I'm in Christ. And so it's not as though the Christian comes to Christ against his will, as though he is kicking and screaming, begging not to go. What has happened is his old will in Adam has been crucified. He has been raised with Christ. And now, according to that new nature, he is repenting of his sin. He's confessing it. He's believing in Christ. He's hungering for the word. He's looking forward to, to coming to church on Sunday and fellowshipping with Christians and, and listening to the word of God. And, and his music selections change no longer the, the, the songs that are blasphemous and adulterous and, and, and pagan, but now songs that exalt God and, and speak of his goodness and truth. All because God has effectively worked in the heart of this person. This is what this doctrine of effectual grace is all about. And a few points of closing application. Um, even in, in, in verse 63, later in the chapter, in chapter, Jesus talking to his disciples who are struggling to figure out what just happened. They, they, they thought this was the moment. They're going to crown him king. The kingdom of God is going to be ushered in. We're going to be set. And, and now they're, they're standing there scratching their heads thinking, what? What just happened? And, and Jesus said, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Verse 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Um, salvation is God's work. It, it's, we contribute nothing to the regenerating work of the Spirit of God. We are the recipients of his work. And so... This doctrine should discourage boasting before God and pride in my heart as I look at a brother or sister or an unbeliever. I should not be raising myself in pride, thinking myself better or more worthy because I understand this is all of God. It's not of me. And, and, and this doctrine should, should 
produce thankfulness and praise in our hearts as we consider that God has saved us. He has caused us to be born again. We have been caught up in this amazing love between the Father and the Son and the Father's giving us to the Son and the Son's atoning for us. Secondly, this doctrine should enable us to speak the truth with clarity and boldness. I really believe that, that that if you are convinced that salvation is God's work, and that the means of his work is the clear and and uh, unchanged proclamation of his gospel, the, the coming of Christ as a man, his life, that was sinless, his death that he died in our place, his resurrection in victory, his ascension, his coming uh, again. And in that message, that even as we were reminded this weekend, the foolishness of that message is the means that God uses. Our goal then is not to, to make it more acceptable to people, to make it a little more friendly, to take out some of the blood and, and some of the, 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 the severity of the cross. We're not to tamper with it. We're just to proclaim it clearly and simply and then trust that God will do the work. It is men who begin to think that somehow they are going to bring about Salvation that will start to drift away from the Word of God, especially in our day, because our culture rejects this book as having any value. So preachers are going to be tempted to to use less and less of the Scripture, more and more of my little stories about nothing. And, and we're going to change the message to be more about God's love, less about His wrath and justice, so that we might supposedly save more. But in the end, actually abandoning the only message by which God saves. Um, we, we, as we understand this, we should be encouraged to, to do away with all the trinkets of men to, to build churches or convert people or even this push for miracles and signs and wonders as though that's really going to bring about the change we're looking for. No, no, it, it didn't work in Christ's day and Jesus knew that. And it won't work today. What we need is the clear proclamation of the gospel that God might be pleased to save whom he will save. And this should also guide us in our prayers as we understand these things. We realize that it's the Spirit who gives life. And this helps us to know how to pray for our children. Maybe a child who is straying, who seems to be, who seems to be uninterested in the things of God. How do we pray? We pray that the Spirit of God might, might invade their life, might, might, might come and work mightily in convicting them of their sin. And we pray that God might sovereignly step in and change their heart. Even as a church, this should guide us, that we pray for the Spirit of God to be powerfully at work among us. Because if it's of us, if it's of our strength, then it is for nothing. Even as Christians, um, you know, it's not that we need to be born again, again. We don't pray the Spirit, you know, uh, this, this whole second baptism thing. No, if you are in Christ, you have the Spirit of God. But Paul commands Christians to, to be filled with the Spirit. And, and so there is this continual need of, of, of the filling of God's Spirit because we are like leaky buckets. Um, and so we pray that the fullness of God continue to dwell in our hearts richly. And lastly, this doctrine should fill our hearts with 
assurance. If you struggle with assurance of your salvation, as you begin to understand that it's God's work from beginning to end, and that all those whom the Father has given will be kept by Christ, and all those who believe upon Christ will be raised with Christ, then you don't have to worry if you are going to come in and out of salvation. If, if you sin and you feel like, oh, God is certainly going to cast me off now. No, he won't. It's not of our flesh. It is of God. And so let us uh, rejoice in what God has done and let us be bold with the word of God, with the gospel. And as Michael Horton um, beautifully put it, he said, the gospel is God's life-giving word, <clears throat> create, <clears throat> excuse me, creating new world out of nothing. The gospel is God's life-giving word, creating a new world out of nothing. And so let us speak it often and with boldness. Let's pray, and then we will have a closing song. God, we thank you for <clears throat> your kindness that you've poured out through the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we wrestle with some of these difficult things, we are grateful that you have given us your word. And that, Lord, there, there, there are clear um, words for us to read and to understand that we need not be confused. And Lord, help us to relate to others struggling with these things in a way that's patient and kind. And um, Lord, we, we thank you for this time now together. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And by faith we'll walk as you walk with us. Speak, Lord. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We pray that you were built up and encouraged in your faith and pointed to Christ, our glorious Savior. If you'd like to know more about Redeeming Grace Bible Church, you can find us online at www.redeeminggracechurch.ca. Or you could write to us at redeeminggracebiblechurch at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you to answer any questions that you might have. God bless.